Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode. And today, I don't know, I mean, how I can introduce somebody with so many titles and a change maker that is really, I mean, disruption personified. Somebody that's really worked is also being granted. I mean, he's awarded UN Champion of the Art. She has worked and now has founded the Disruptive Design Method. Now we are asking to Dr. Leila Ajarolu. Thank you so much, Leila, for being here with us. Thank you for having me. And Leila, I mean, when I read your bio and we discussed, I was like, wow, a change maker which really fits perfectly in the work that we are doing with the podcast. But as usual, who is Leila? What is your sustainability journey? Well, I personally, when I was younger, was very interested in human rights issues. That was my kind of first exciting motivation into the world of kind of caring about people and the planet. But it wasn't until I was in design school, actually, studying to be a product designer, when I learned, thanks to an engineering professor, about the Gaia theory, you know, everything in nature being interconnected. And it really blew my mind, like completely changed my perspective on the world. And I committed myself in that moment to trying to figure out how to be an eco-designer, a designer who created things that helped address the environmental issues. And in those days, those environmental issues were a lot less pressing as the ones we see today. So I really decided to transition my career at that point while still being very passionate about design and the role that design plays. I actually quit design school and went and studied sociology because I felt I really needed to understand more about humanity, how we create a lot of the problems, and then also how humanity could potentially work together to solve them. After completing my uh, social science degree, I actually studied to do my PhD in industrial design, bringing in sustainability. So I kind of went full circle, which I'm very grateful for because I feel that these two professions design and sociology are like amazing forces that can work together, understanding economics, human behavior, psychology, as well as design and experiences, functionality, and all of these elements. And thankfully as well, I was mentored and worked for a leading life cycle assessment practitioner during those years. So I also got the technical sustainability and impact assessment background and ended up working in environmental uh, auditing. And so I got this broad experience with how to understand environmental impacts. And then with my design skills, really started to look at how we could create campaigns, communication, or a lot of the work that I've done is around education and gamification to create tools and resources that practically apply to the transformation that needs to happen to bring about sustainability in business, in government, and in society. So I have been an entrepreneur since I was 25. I have founded a few different initiatives, including my first company was in Australia called Eco Innovators, and we developed a lot of educational tools. And then I moved to the US and I founded Disrupt Design, which then created the unschool of disruptive design. And through that, we've taught tens of thousands of people all over the world, systems, sustainability, and design as tools for creative change making. 
and I've been commissioned to design different tools and resources, worked with some of the world's biggest companies, NGOs, and had really a very flourishing career in using design and creativity as a tool for transformation. And for that, I also do a lot of public speaking workshops. And most recently, I've developed something called Swivel Skills, which is a corporate sustainability training platform that I would like to say is unboring because um, somebody who's worked in sustainability for a while, perhaps you and I could agree, a lot of the content is a little on the boring side. And let's be honest, anytime you want to learn something new, the more exciting, interesting and connected it can be to you, the more likely you are to retain the information and apply it. So that's what we're doing with Swivel Schools. Getting the spark of creativity and bringing people on board, it's really important. How to bring people in this challenge. Us, as you said, we are practitioners, we work, we discuss, and we are we are drinking the Kool-Aid every day. But with a, a bit of a briskle and shiny, we can get the people and the masses. And we can say in a way also design and making things not boring. It's 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 a really an interesting way. And before we go on to discuss this exciting uh, work that you are doing, I want to start from the practitioner point of view. You are coming from the design. We know that it's not the tradition. We think about designers like, oh, you do ergonomics and stuff like this, or, you know, maybe marketing, very consumerism, and not like associating with do part, with the sustainability part. So which are the most common misconceptions about sustainability you have encountered in your work, in your field, and now you are trying to address them? Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions. I mean, I've been working in sustainability for 20 years. And certainly when I started, you know, the kinds of things we talked about are different to the conversations we have today. There's been a maturity for sure around the role that sustainability plays, but also there's the legacy issues, I should say, that are creating the laggards and people who are still dragging their feet. And some of those legacy issues are around framing the language we've used in the past and the way that cognitively creates particular concepts for people like the tree hugger or it's about the polar bears or the whales. And these kinds of ideas are unfortunately reductive in the sense that they break down this very complex and useful tool, sustainability being a technical tool set for figuring out how to understand impacts that a, an entity has on the world around it and then to make active choices and strategies to reduce those impacts. I believe part of sustainability, you know, is truly a pathway to regeneration. But in order to get there, we need to actually have the tools and techniques and the practical application as a journey towards getting to a point where we can give back more than we take. But that kind of understanding is, is still not fully in the kind of lexicon. I think we've had some amazing recent transformations, like the circular economy has been an amazing kind of umbrella that's helped in the product and supply chain, business case side of things. And then we've got ESG working in the financial markets to disrupt really quite significantly. If you look at the anti-ESG movement going on in the US right now, there's a lot of uh, disruption going on. So these kinds of techniques or tools have helped to leave a change under the umbrella of sustainability. But I kind of see sustainability in the modern form as still being seen as this like add-on, nice to have, fluffy feel good, um, thing that you do if you care about the planet. It's not seen still as a primary business objective, although that is changing, thanks to the things I mentioned earlier, as well as a technical tool set. People don't realize you need technical skills to do sustainability. It is not something that you can just wake up one morning and get excited about and do some internet searching and suddenly be able to do. It really does require you to understand the different techniques of impact assessment, 
um, relative to the type of product service or business framework you're doing. Um, there's a whole series of now legal obligations, depending on where you are in the world, what you're doing. And so companies who are adopting sustainability as part of their organizational change are really having to learn quite quickly that they need to hire and have the appropriate skilled people in order to ensure that they're not only complying with what's required of them, but they're also leading through sustainability because uh, I've long promoted and I still fully believe sustainability is an incredible innovation opportunity because it's about parameters and throughout all of human history, understanding parameters, the limits that are available to us are the things that have actually driven us to create new ways of doing and being in the world. And so that innovation opportunity can be tapped and to really used as a driver for business development. And especially when done within the framework of a circular economy, we've really got some amazing startups and even legacy companies doing some pretty incredible things would not have been thought of even possible 10, 15 years ago. I guess to summarize my thoughts are the framing is an issue. We need to stop using these old terminologies and ideas. We need to reprogram the way we understand sustainability. It's a it's an innovation opportunity. It's a core to business decision-making. It's about living within the means of the planet. It's not about sustaining the status quo, as some would say. Um, and for sure, it's a pathway to regeneration. However, regeneration itself is completely undefined, as we state, within a Western ideology and with certainly within the um, unfortunate reality of you know, still being in a in a colonialist mindset in most Western countries, we have to really kind of deconstruct that and learn from First Nations around the world how to live within the means of the planet and respect that wholly in the decisions we make when it comes to regeneration. And thank you so much, Leila. A very interesting, I really like a lot of points that you have discussed, really the concept of sustainability are pushing towards the frontier of innovation and the work and a wonderful opportunity and also the way that we discuss with other guests especially the indigenous way on how to live with the people and especially some episode that we had before on how to bring conservation and regeneration in a way that is bounded also with the culture and the practices that's been there even ancestrally with with some of the people a point on that is that if you actually look at kind of a lot of the root causes of the modern environmental and social crises, it is directly linked to the colonization mindset. You know, I'm from Australia, 250 odd years ago, it was colonized, the indigenous population, the 500 different language groups and cultures of the First Nations Australians were lived up to 120,000 years sustainably on, on the land. And I think that the, the knowledge and the respect that needs to happen is, is just burgeoning right now. And so certainly in Europe, where I also live and work, there's a, not a lot of understanding the same way as countries that have had and still have um, strong Indigenous and First Nations populations. And I think that this is a really important conversation to be had separately within the broader sustainability community of how we can kind of decolonize, uh, for lack of a better term, our own approaches and learn collaboratively with those communities that have very much in, embedded in their DNA, their psychology and their worldview, how to work within the natural systems, but not do it in a piecemeal or, you know, inequitable way, but to really bring, bring the voices, the minds, the creatives and the leaders from these communities to the forefront so that they can share and help to build, rebuild sustainability and all of its different facets into a more regenerative and holistic approach. And I, I really hope that we can build that in the coming years and personally something I'm very passionate about. You know, I think the, the capitalism and the, the system that they put 200 years has roamed the world, of course, in a way, has solved a lot of problems, but has created with the extractive 
mentality that is going on everywhere and then it really created all the problem and some of this problem of this extractive colonial mentality you are trying to address with your ideas and work one of the idea i mean that really found it very interesting the disruptive design method can you give a brief overview what is it what are you trying to achieve in my personal journey of learning about sustainability and how it works i uncovered a well-known academic and historical tool called systems thinking which totally like just blew my mind at the time I was like of course everything's interconnected and as a, like a person who wants to solve problems which is what designers are taught to do break problems down to rebuild them in different ways understanding systems thinking was like a, a complete game changer for me because rather than starting with the parts you actually start with the whole which is very connected to design and um, by understanding how to intervene in systems as was presented by Danella Meadows you really get a, a transformative approach to disruption or, or intentionally changing a system to create a different outcome, which is how I see disruption. So in the years of teaching and experimenting, I kind of formulated this approach called the disruptive design method, which actually has a pretty strong methodology of 12 different kind of concepts that have drawn from sociology and design, everything from gamification and game theory to cognitive biases, looking at activation theories, as well as a lot of the things that we've learned over the last uh, 20 years in science that has helped us drive better decisions when it comes to organizational change and cultural transformation, as well as the practical tools of design, which is about, you know, understanding a problem, being able to iterate on it, loving it, and then creating, you know, solutions that transform it, and then being able to test them in the world. So the disruptive design method is a three-part process. So methodology is the kind of guts. But the thing that I teach, the thing that anyone can access is this very quick three-part process that involves mining, landscaping, and building. And yes, that is a construction metaphor going on there because I see it as a scaffolding. Like when you're building a building, you need this ex exoskeleton to hold up the initial structure so that you can build the interior. And then once the building's solid, you take that exoskeleton, that scaffolding off, and you've got this building, right? It's a very similar concept. So what we do in the disruptive design method is we first mine a problem. That's where we learn to love it rather than try to solve it or lay blame. And it's in this stage that we are deeply exploring the underlying issues like in the iceberg model, which I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, you know, rather than the tip of the iceberg, you have to dive under the, the waterline to see what's holding it up. And that's really the mining phase. So we go ferreting for parts and pieces. We do research. We understand the complexities of the problem, but all from a systems perspective. Then we take those parts and we put them together in a systems map in the landscaping phase, which is like where you get that bird's eye view, 50,000 foot perspective of the whole system at play. There we identify areas of intervention and those areas of intervention should be within your sphere of influence and agency. Because again, from my experience with teaching people, whether it be people in government or individuals wanting to make change, a lot of people deflect the responsibility or agency to affect change to parts of the system they have no control or influence over, like education or government policies. And maybe one day they will, but in their immediate life, if their job is something completely different, then you have to be able to work within your sphere of influence to initially start to make change a reality. And I always say, you know, um, at this phase, it's really important to be to, to just do whatever's possible. And over time, that expands your sphere of influence. So we landscape, we pull the pieces up from the mining, we get the systems perspective, we identify the areas of intervention, and from there we can build disruptive change at that point of intervention. And it's in that phase, the building phase, we do more of a traditional design process where we ideate, we come up with possible solutions, and then we test them, um, test them for their rigor against the change agenda, 
as well as their feasibility. We use things like theory of change um, here to also do that. And then, of course, we design the final intervention and um, deploy it in the world. And of course, because everything's iterative, you can go back around and, and continue to cycle through the DDM mining to see how you were successful or not and changing over time. Personally, I use this method in all the projects that I have um, I'm done, whether it be like I recently created a, a project with the United Nations um, environment program called the Anatomy of Action, which is all about sustainable lifestyles and living. And that, you know, really looked at what natural and emerging trends people were using around sustainability in their lifestyles and, and amplifying them through a series of nomadic references, in this case, your hand, using simple categories of, of food, stuff, movement, money and fun and creating um, a kind of social media campaign that the UN continue to use today to help promote sustainable lifestyles. So I like it just to be, like I said, a scaffolding, which means it's not long-term, it's a process. I really want everybody in the world to learn to love problems, thinking systems, and be creative. And that's really what the method's all about. And uh, I see it being used all over the world, which is fantastic. I freely published information about it, as well as you can take courses at the Unschool Online, which goes like much more detailed and depth. We certify practitioners as well as people as educators to be able to teach it. So it's a very a good tool when you were discussing also to bring people out of the bias of the status quo and the uncertainty that sometimes frees us to action. When you go and familiarize with the problem, then from there you look it outside and then you really see where are my sphere of influence and work. It's really a, a wonderful tool. And going there now. You know, you have mentioned your one of two initiatives that uh, we are really spreading now, you know, the Unschool of Disruptive Design you just mentioned and the Swiver School. What are the goals for this initiative? What are the impact that you want to bring? Yeah, so I, I kind of organically worked in different forms of education over the last, you know, 15 years pretty solidly. And um, but community driven education. And that came actually because when I was first starting out, I was invited to teach at a primary school, like a, a young school. I don't know what it is in different parts of the world, but just think young kids about sustainability. And I went in and I had all these cool games and like we did the life cycle of chocolate chip cookies. And these kids got it all. Like one kid actually explained climate change to me better than I could explain it. And it was amazing. I walked out and the teacher comes up to me and he was just like completely gobsmacked. And he was like, wow, I've never thought about this stuff before. That was amazing. And I had this really profound moment where I was like, the kids are fine. We need to teach the teachers. So I actually, you know, decided to create a school for adults called the Unschool of Disruptive Design. I founded it in 2014. And proudly, I think we were one of the first kind of like non-traditional educational platforms to teach systems thinking and creativity as tools for change, which have now become very popular, which is great. Obviously, these tools were useful in universities, but, you know, the difference if you're a professional already working in the world, i.e. a teacher or a designer or, you know, even a civil servant, and you need to learn how to apply these tools to your job and role, going back to university is kind of pretty impractical really so i wanted to create a really applied learning experience and so in the beginning we actually ran these really amazing uh, immersive uh, interactive educational experiences that went for one week these fellowships we ran them all over the world from new york to sao paulo mexico city mumbai kuching san francisco and we would take 20 people on this really um, incredible journey around how to activate change. And unfortunately, we had to stop doing that because of COVID. <laughs> and uh, we haven't picked that up again, because since then, it's been eight years, we have a very robust online education platform that um, called the Unschools Online, which 
we fortunately had already set up before COVID. And so we just transitioned to having learners go there, which is great. And, and in that experience of running this online education platform, having tens of thousands of students in there, I got really inspired to create something specific for the corporate environment. Over the last few years, I've been fortunate enough to be invited by some of the world's biggest companies, name a brand, I've probably worked for them in some way, usually giving workshops or lectures to their design department, engineering, even, even their um, you know, CEOs or leaders uh, groups, and often about sustainability, the trends, and how to do it from a scientific standpoint. And over and over again in those experiences, I would often be quite shocked. And maybe you've had this experience yourself where you're talking to a senior sustainability person and they don't understand some of the technical issues that they need. Or you, you, you can see perhaps a, a big greenwashing disaster about to unfold and you could say it to them. And for whatever reason, they aren't seeing it. They've got their blinders on. And I think part of that problem is because most organizations don't see sustainability as a universal knowledge bank or tool that everybody needs to understand. And that to me is really problematic because like any transformation in business, like when we transition to digital or when we had to bring OHS, occupational health and safety online, the entire company had to be educated in this. It doesn't work to have one small group of digital experts or OHS experts and then everybody else to not even know what OHS means or how to use a keyboard. That doesn't work. So sustainability in a corporate setting is very similar understanding the regulatory requirements, whether that be the new CSRD and you know ESG taxonomy frameworks in Europe, or even understanding just what an impact assessment is and how to perform it. Product environmental impact assessments and you know product declarations through life cycle assessment. These concepts are a little complicated. I work in this space and every other day I'm learning some new acronym or something that I have to uh, you know adapt to. So that that um knowledge gap, basically, between what companies need to know in order to perform their business and do it within these frameworks and what is available was quite obvious to me. I, I did a, one day I sat down and I was like, all right, if I was a manager in a company and I went to Google and I started typing this stuff in, what would I find? And to be honest, I was, again, quite shocked back to the unboring some, you know, some pretty fantastical web pages, web 1.0, I would say, and also some greenwashing, some valuable resources like the UN have, but also in a little bit of an obtuse way and not necessarily targeted at business. Having worked with business, they have a very different process of decision making. And applying these concepts into a business framework is the really big thing. It's like not just knowing them, it's how does it fit within a business context. So I started this project about two years ago. And it's still going and we're, we're, we're kind of quietly launched and we have products available, but we're building out industry specific learning journeys and, and really trying to create as much connection to industry um, as possible. So whether you're in the manufacturing sector or if the fast moving, fast moving consumer goods or if you're, um, you know, a design uh, industry professional, like we're essentially creating learning journeys that that really cover climate literacy, the circular economy, sustainability and impact assessment, and then industry-specific knowledge, like how do you actually do a materiality or double materiality assessment for ESG? How do you apply lifecycle um, thinking to product development using streamlined LCAs? So really providing that, that practical application and giving access at a company-wide level. So companies can actually gain, um, have their own white-labeled platform that's specific to the company and then all staff can take it they can get certified and uh, and really my model 
is the OHS movement. I just looked at exactly how that happened, how we went from having no safety requirements in businesses to essentially nearly every company in the world having to train people and report and make sure that you have a safe working environment because I think it's a very similar transformation that's underway. So that's swivel skills. When I was listening to you, my mind was like, wow, that is really something that is coming up also in the world. Sometimes the world of sustainability is the nice to have, is the nice and fine department not attached with the business where we do the good things. That's really what you see everybody should bring on board. And it brings a lot of change and organizational change in the way you reward people, in the way you discuss. So, you know, everybody in the company should be there. And what happened also with the safety standards, you know, it has become one part of the work also of the bread and butter of the companies. What I really liked, it is the practitional part, something that the businesses, when you go online and you read about tipping point in science, maybe sometimes somebody in the business cannot uh, read a big article on science or maybe other uh, academic, but it really needs something down. And I want to ask this to you, which are the toolkits that you have developed and the experience that you have developed, how they can help the people, you know, break away with this status quo, especially in company? Aside from these kind of educational platforms and experiences, I've long been quite obsessed with designing gamified things. So I've designed different games, like literal card games, one called the Design Play Cards, another one called uh, Designer, Designer Size, which is was about breaking biases around creativity and encouraging people to think literally outside of the box. And for me, these types of things are really useful because we know from the science that people learn more when they're having fun. That's one thing. But also people love challenge. Challenge is a really good motivator. Um, and most people are re rewarded by extrinsic motivators like getting uh, approval from your peers or um, winning something. So these are great tools or techniques to rapidly engage people with new concepts or ideas. And we know that this has become quite successful in, in industry and business with gamification in, in apps and all sorts of things like that. But from a kind of teaching sustainability or engaging people with thinking differently, I find that uh, if I've got a room full of CEOs or important people, I can actually uh, bust through a lot of their, mm, let's say, negativity bias or resistance to, say, learning about climate change by just a really well-placed challenge that helps them break out of their own siloed thinking and start to uh, shift perspective on the problem that's in front of them. For me personally, like I love teaching this way, but the, the idea of making these toolkits is that other people can apply these approaches. And I was inspired by successful games like, you know, Cards Against Humanity, which was really popular a decade ago, and just how that became like a cultural phenomenon. And I was thinking, well, that's a really great way for one person to create a little provocation and hopefully make change. And, and certainly I've seen that with a lot of the tools that we've created over the years. But I do think that toolkits in general are becoming more and more fashionable. So you see a lot of tools and toolkits available. And playbooks, I think, is another term um, that is used. But for me, I think the fundamental thing is about fun. Make it fun because people are more likely to learn it. But also, and it's just more enjoyable, dopamine is a great reward <laughs> motivator. But also, I think the other thing you mentioned about, you know, this kind of siloed or companies often having their sustainability team or their green team, those people are the people who would come to the unschool. And a lot of the time, they're completely burnt out, absolutely overextended, under-resourced, and they're often saddled with not only doing sustainability, but also, you know, 
like environmental impact assessment, but also like diversity and inclusion or, you know, really a significant amount of social and environmental issues laid on their, their plates and not enough company-wide support. So you then have this, a lot of resistance. And so I, a lot of the, the kind of uh, coaching or mentoring that I've had to do over the years are with these types of people who have the best intentions and they have purpose. Even if they have like the best technical skills, a lot of the time their job is actually changing other people's perspective or educating within the company and that's exhausting and extremely time consuming so however i can create tools or activities a lot of workshop activities that can be used at a lunchtime session that help that person inside the team engage all their other people with this concept in a really rapid way so that they are then more empowered to actually do their job like that's something early on Thankfully, in the last few years, we've seen a lot more integration. So we've got chief sustainability officers and the role of sustainability has started to really elevate within the company. So we're seeing that less and less now. But I think that that's why the the kind of skills training or literacy training of like the majority of the workers in the company is a really big next step. Because if people don't understand the acronyms or, for example, what the difference between a science-based target or a net zero target is, then you're going to have a lot of slow adaptation, possibly even resistance, or in the worst case, you have accidental greenwashing or non-compliance to leg- legislative frameworks. So, you know, I think combined, there's a really big push right now for that it be this kind of inside out transformation. And I personally am really excited by that. I hope that we do it really well. <laughs> have have um, mistakes of the past. You know, the 90s, we had a really big push for environmental stuff and it was kind of like a backlash after a lot of greenwashing cases. But thankfully, a lot of countries are now implementing anti-greenwashing legislation and really robust frameworks for reporting on environmental standards. And again, like those of you listening are thinking, wow, there's a lot there. And I agree, like even myself in preparing the content for Swivel Skills, um, I'm constantly having to decipher what pieces of information are relevant and some pieces of information are relevant as of now 2023 but in 12 months they might not be because it's such an emergent space do you know what i mean like there are new ideas coming up and new provocations there are new frameworks being discussed um so there is it is a really emergent market and that of course then makes it exciting but a little complicated and confusing so the, the more fun interesting engaging and exciting the more tools and resources the better for it we all are it's really interesting, Leila, when the discussion you are having, because that is where we need to work. But you also, you say the inside out from the companies, but also we, we see the role of policymakers, government and the global leaders. And on that, you have been awarded from UNEP, the champion of the earth. So how do you see from this perspective, the global perspective, how we can involve the policymaker, the, the big business leader in really pursue this objective of sustainability? Obviously, policy or regulation is an amazing lever. I also think taxation, financial mechanisms are really useful at both the consumer and the producer level. I think that we are in a stage of not knowing 100% what's going to get the best outcome. I think because a lot of the previous policy decisions made, so in the past we had, you know, the WE Directive and the Ross Directive in Europe, and they had certain degrees of benefit, but we still have a significant issue with electronic waste, for example, and the WE Directive didn't really solve that in the most effective way. So we're learning about the policy implements, what policy instruments work and what policy instruments can have unintended consequences, like the biodiesel legislation in Europe that really did backfire. 
contribute to a world food crisis in 2011. So I think that it's really interesting to look at policy as like this amazing tool that can be extremely powerful and perhaps also a little detrimental. I'm personally of the field of uh, thought where it's better to use a carrot than a stick. <laughs> Sticks are, you know, perhaps necessary in, in very, very clear cut cases, like when we know we have extremely hazardous materials that are very toxic and dangerous. So you have unscrupulous players doing really illegitimate things in the market, but that most times agents in a, in a system will always work towards what is rewarding versus what is punishment. I do think that in the way of having guidelines and being and having uh, recommendations and best practices, whilst they are softer policy intervention tools, I do think in a lot of cases they're quite effective, especially if they've got year-on-year -year improvement, because sometimes policies can actually work as a, a kind of lowest common denominator factor. Like if you set a rule up and then people only perform to that rule, we need rules to actually drive innovation and transformation. So I think that there's a there's a way to do that and in each sector and, and you know, whether it be addressing circular economy initiatives, waste, um, managing waste or promoting climate tech solutions, right? Like there's so many sectors that need to have regulation. But I, I like some of the new rules that I really like, like California put in a rule. Can you believe it that nowhere in the world except for California, there are rules about how you can use the recycling logo, because the uh, Chasing Arrows logo that we all are familiar with, the little triangle, is actually in the Creative Commons and is widely available to use in any which way anybody wants, which means that a lot of companies shove it on the back of a piece of packaging that is not recyclable with a tiny, tiny print that says, not yet recyclable, which is extremely confusing to the consumer and leads to wish cycling. So California is one of the only places in the world where there's actually rules about how you can use the recycling logo. Now, in that case, it, the rules are guidelines where they're saying, don't perform poorly and do whatever you want, because that's going to let players just be unscrupulous in the market. Here are the guidelines in which you have to use this. And so in those cases, I think that that's really effective at driving change and transformation. So I think that generally policies are useful tools. They should be done, as I said, more carrot then stick, although sticks sometimes useful. I think that UN level interventions around the plastics treaties, the oceans treaties, the biodiversity guidelines, the COPs, these are all providing the, the important motivation at a you know multilateral level for a universal agreement, therefore a commitment. And these are important mechanisms, but on a day-to-day -day level, like how a local government or a federal government put in rules that support sustainability, I think it's it's a really fine line between being effective or creating opportunities for people to, to skirt the rules. And I think waste is one of those big issue areas that needs to be done very, very cautiously because done inappropriately, you just encourage people to return to burning their trash in their backyard because it's cheaper than playing landfill levies, which we see right now in many countries. So there's a, a lot of pros and cons, and that's why design, actually, you know what, that's why design is so important, because design is about understanding the context and looking at things from, you know, um, different viewpoints and understanding how to create something that's going to achieve the most appropriate functionality, what the goals you're trying to achieve. And so I actually think, and I'm a big proponent of design being brought into government decision making and national design policies are actually very useful tools instead of, say, a sustainability policy, because if you can guide 
designers, engineers, product managers to have specific guidelines or responsibilities that they have to adhere to, they will naturally then start to gain the data and information to bring that into the products that are being created or imported into a country. And the same applies to countries, communities that have implemented design at the government level. Um, they've really benefited from having a designerly perspective be used in the development of policy, communication campaigns, and community engagement. And it's really important what you're saying, and we are seeing it also here in our context of emerging markets, how these rules and regulations are affecting, and especially, you know, the landfill, the recycling, and, and the bottlenecks that we are having, and that will be solved with proper design and work, and so establishing of, pol of policies. And you have mentioned this design can be a disruptor and really led to the creation of creating intervention to really solve the problems. And I'm sure that you have discussed many of the things. So you have encountered many uh, change makers and work and initiative along your career. Can you give us some example of this intervention, how they've made a difference, how they can make a difference in our world? There's obviously product level intervention. So whether that be apps that connect people who are throwing out food waste, like Too Good To Go, which helps create a market for what would otherwise be disposed of in landfill. Um, in fact, a lot of sharing platforms have come up in the last few years, whether that be for high-end fashion or for, you know, consumer goods like uh, tool libraries and things like that that are that is popping up to support people accessing the functionality of a drill or something else for the time that they need it. Because realistically, you're probably not going to use a drill that many times in your life, right? Unless you're a contractor. So we're seeing a lot of those types of design-led, experience-led interventions that are connecting people and helping uh, people reduce their material consumption. You know, one of the interventions I love is from Taiwan, where the waste management system is dealt with quite differently to most other countries. And that is where instead of you putting your trash in a, in a bag in a bin and someone comes in the middle of the night and takes it, you actually have to take it out yourself. The truck comes past playing a musical tune like an ice cream truck. So you have a particular time of day, you are responsible for actually depositing your trash in the back of the truck at the same time as everybody else in your street. So what happens is it actually creates a social condition where people are visually being seen by their neighbors and what they're doing and so therefore you're in, you know you're increasing a particular type of of um normalized behavior and then you're paying for the type of um trash whether it be organic waste uh, recyclables or landfill the specific bag has to be purchased at a certain price so you know this is a kind of different way of dealing with waste and using social conditions to design a different experience so, you know, I mean, there are lots of different product interventions like Mud Jeans, which is like a subscription company for your jeans that you can then get this functionality for the period you need and send them back when you don't need them anymore. There's lighting as a service for commercial industries, so the circular economy solutions, where instead of you're a big building owner, you can get all of the lighting uh, fixtures managed and you pay a, a fee over time. Um, the company is then incentivized to design the products to be decommissioned, repaired and reused because they own the assets over time. There's so many different types of interventions. I think what's important, though, is to think about context, because I can give a lot of examples, but it is actually the context that the example is being applied in that will determine its environmental and social benefit. Every community, every country, every industry is different. Knowing what the end of life options are. So lots of countries don't have organic waste recycling and organic waste is one of the biggest contributors to methane. It is a travesty that we still throw 
you know, our food scraps into landfill because it, it creates a huge climate change contribution, uh, toxic leachates, and it's a lost resource because our soils, we need phosphorus, we need those um, minerals. So, you know, for me, I think things like micro and, and macro biodigesters are really important, like technical interventions to communities so that we can reduce organic waste, create methane, and that can be tapped and used as a power source. So in emerging economies, you still have like these really cool biogas bladders, right? That people put their cow dung in or their, and in the past, you know, burning cow dung was really toxic and dangerous for people, as we know, but put in a bladder controlled, you can actually create the the energy outcomes you need and reduce that issue. Whilst, of course, there's still methane in it being burnt off, you've actually displaced one fossil fuel for a, you know, renewable source. So, you know, just the, the scale, the context, the thing you're trying to solve. But that's why, as well, any of these examples, they have to be understood in the context of, like, the full system's impacts. And some perceived solutions can actually cause bigger problems. And that's why, you know, I'm a big proponent of using assessment and life cycle thinking as tools in decision making and validation, especially at a product level, because we then know the whole system impacts. And we also learn, like, how many times does this thing have to be used in order for us to gain back its environmental footprint? And those pieces of data are really valuable in validating bigger scale transformation. So you know, the reuse movement is critical to sustainability in eliminating waste. Single use is like a travesty. I have a TED talk uh, and I, I speak from 10 years ago and I speak about plastic versus paper based on life cycle data. And, you know, for me, the plastics industry itself is not a terrible industry. You know, plastic is an amazing material that can be used for very long periods of time. It's extremely durable. Of course, there are many um, negative side effects with certain types of plastics and chemical residue, et cetera. But the worst thing in the world is to take a very high valuable, high value, infinitely, you know, indestructible material and make single use stuff out of it. Like, it's just so dumb. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it, and I think that this is like in the past, you know, we killed 26 million elephants in the early days of colonization so rich people could have billiard balls and, you know, butter knives made out of ivory. And now we're dealing with the consequences of those decisions. And I think it's very similar. It's just like, just because we can doesn't mean we should. That learning means that that doesn't mean that the plastics industry needs to disappear. It needs to transform into producing products, not pellets. Right now, most of the revenue for a plastics industry is to sell pellets to producers who then make plastic water bottles or whatever, and then then take zero responsibility for them ending up in the oceans, okay? But if we transform that business model and plastics producers actually start to design the functional delivery of moving liquids, which is what they that product is trying to do, then we can actually, they can build a strong economic model. They can be incentivized to create durable, long-lasting products. They can then be responsible for the take back reverse logistics and actually generate continual revenue like the lighting as service we can have packaging as service as well and so you know like i just can't wait for the forward thinking company and ceo who does this and does it well because they are the ones who will see out this century for sure and thank you so much leila for these really instructive examples and work some of them that we haven't touched the, the work i'm work i'm doing during my day job and the work that we are trying to do with communities that have really an impact also beyond just the climate but also the gender and the disruption of traditional roles i know we will discuss a lot with you but we are going to the close and of course 
some of the idea you have mentioned, somebody from the audience will say, yes, okay, very nice. Maybe I will go and check and we'll put in the links, the schools and the, and the, the school for disrupting design. But Leila, you are a change maker. You are discussing with a lot. As we are in the business, what we can do, which are some tips that you can give to our broad audience that they want to start working on this? It's funny. I get asked this a lot. And my first response is usually the least popular, <laughs> which is you can dramatically reduce your meat consumption because meat is one of the biggest personal impact areas that an individual has, not just because of the fact that 97% of meat is still is produced in factory farms. Factory farms have effluent runoff that contributes to dead zones. And also it's kind of torturous for the poor animals. But because a large percentage of our factory farmed meat products, chickens, beef, pork, et cetera, is actually fed on uh, soy products that are farmed in high fertile areas like the lungs of the planet, the Amazon. So the biggest driver of destruction of natural habitat and forest is actually the production of cheap grains to feed the cattle industry. So it is a really big personal impact area. And I'm not saying all listeners have to become vegan or vegetarian. In fact, I don't recommend a quick transformation. You might really have a, an unhappy experience. I definitely think it's about quality over quantity. And it's about sourcing these types of very high impact products from the most local and ethical uh, sources available to you. So that might mean like reducing your restaurant meat consumption and only consuming at home where you know you can buy more sustainable uh, source products. And these things have an impact. I know it sounds um, like one person making this decision, but I tell you right now, the you know big meat industry is petrified of the shift in the food consumption practices of most people in Western countries because non-meat-based products are becoming extremely popular, like a 3,000% increase in the UK retail market, for example. And we know that things like plant-based milks have been really successful at helping to reduce the impact of the dairy industry. So it's not to say that these industries shouldn't exist, it's that they do need to change and that's the at scale model that's having the big impact. So it's not that they should completely disappear, it's that they need to transform in relation to consumer choice. And if we all demand more ethical and sustainable versions of meat, poultry products, then that will start to happen. The next one is definitely your organic waste. So however you can avoid sending that to landfill, I mean, a lot of emerging economies still have really fantastic organic waste collection, Mexico and other places. And of course, more established economies are bringing this in. But it is a really, really important part of our personal footprint. And um, so if that means having a home worm farm or composting or using a community driven uh, system, but getting organic material out of landfill is a second big one. And then the third one I would say is, you know, wherever you can reduce the demand that you have for new things. Now, I know our economy is based on, you know, production and consumption and GDP, but it is a really big driver of unsustainability is the constant perpetual creation of new things. So if you can buy secondhand, whether it be uh, fashion items or technology, and especially if you can repair and, and redeploy products into the market too, so that doesn't apply just to what you buy, but also if you have something useful that you're not using, can you resell it in a way that means that somebody else gets that value? These are all important personal decisions. And again, that Anatomy of Action project I mentioned has all of this data and information available on the website, anatomyofaction.org, individual actions you can take. Now, for those listening who are business leaders and you're working in a company, so the biggest thing you need to do is understand where your impacts occur as a company. Every organization is different. 
You will definitely have operational impacts, energy waste, water, procurement, transportation, infrastructure. And those are the kind of lower level hanging fruit because you can often just assess your bills and determine your environmental footprint that way. But moving on to your products. So every company provides products and services. Even if you're a digital based company, you will have a significant environmental contribution through the servers that you're using and through the amount of data that you're storing, et cetera. Digital footprinting has now become a big part of a sustainability and climate action for companies. So you need to basically understand where the impacts are occurring in the products you produce and in your supply chain. Lifecycle thinking is a very useful tool for this, as well as supply chain mapping. And then I think it's also critical to understand the experiences that you provide to both your customers and your stakeholders and your employees, because if you're a leader, if you're in middle level management or senior management, you are essentially dictating what is appropriate within your company. And so the best way to set standards or goals is to have really good aspirational policies that support your team members um, adhering to the same goals. And I find that the best way to develop policies is to actually collaboratively create them with your team so that they then feel some ownership over it. So this is environmental policies, diversity and inclusion policies, ethical supply chain policies. And these are great mechanisms to help your transformation underway. I actually just wrote an entire guidebook on this for managers called Swivel to Sustainability. You can grab it from my website. And because you know the points that you're asking me, I get asked a lot, so I thought I would capture them for managers and decision makers in a text format so that I can save my jaw from selling these things over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much, Leila. It's really interesting, you know, as the, as the Latin say, repetita juvent, but at least with something written, we can have also something that will remain <laughs> also. It's like a reflection tool, you know, to think through here are the 18 areas of impact. Where's mine? What can I do about it? Oh, how do you do a waste audit? Here's a, a worksheet on how to do it. So yeah, I, I'm really into, as I mentioned, just synthesizing and creating tools and resources because, you know, I prefer when other people have done that for industries that I'm not familiar with. So I try to do that for this industry too, to help rapidly get that change and transformation underway. Perfect. And you will find the links in the description of the episode. Thank you so much, Leila, for your wonderful episode. It's been a pleasure hosting you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.